Coming up on Tech Nation, how do we meet the global needs for medicines faster than we do now? I speak with Dr. Sue Desmond-Hellman, the CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Penny Heaton, CEO of a new organization, the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, also called Gates MRI. And while Gates MRI may be new, the foundation's funding of scientist entrepreneurs is not. Dr. Jake Glanville is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Distributed Bio. We'll talk about pigs in Guatemala and developing a universal flu vaccine. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. Engineers have always had to know the mathematics behind any endeavor, for it's disaster if they're wrong. Say you want to tunnel under a river, so you start digging from both sides. How do you know you will meet in the middle? Well, that's math. But before there were calculators, before there were computers, there were math tables. Actually, before there were math tables, each engineer had to work it out by longhand. But math is math. Once solved, why have everyone redo the calculation? You could get it wrong, and it took time. Hence the birth of the math table. You might remember sine and cosine from high school math. Now don't stop listening, you mathophobes. We're not actually going to do any math in this commentary. And remember, your friends who love you and who also love math will tell you that the sine goes from zero to one, while the cosine starts at one and goes to zero, like two ships passing in the night. They come at each other and pass each other on a precise schedule. And when one arrives at zero, the other arrives at one. Then they turn around and come back at each other again. See? When explained in terms of ships, it's not so bad, is it? For all these centuries, engineers and mathematicians needed to know the precise position of those ships at every point during their passage from zero to one and back again. For most of human history, they were unable to press that button on their calculators, marked SIN for sine and COS for cosine. And for years, they've looked them up on tables. One perennial question for historians is what did civilizations know about mathematics and when? For example, you might remember that Greek fellow Pythagoras. He wrote down and proved what we call the Pythagorean theorem, telling us how to calculate the length of sides of right triangles. And he did it around 500 B.C. And it has tortured every high school student in modern times. What a legacy! Still, Pythagoras wrote it down and proved it. But who thought it up? Was there an earlier proof? Humans will use anything that works. Somebody else can figure out why later. (laughs) 
Professors Daniel Mansfield and Norman Wildberger of the University of New South Wales in Sydney took a good hard look at a clay tablet from ancient Babylonia, about 800 B.C. It's as thick as a brick, and the surface looks to be about the size of a large index card. And the more I look at it, the more it looks like an Excel spreadsheet. Sixty numbers, laid out in 15 rows with four columns. In other words, it's a math table. These professors used this table to figure out the lengths of each side of right triangles, just like Pythagoras wrote about 1,300 years later. It wasn't as accurate as today's calculator, jumping the other angles in the triangle a degree at a time, but it worked. You have to wonder if the mathematical knowledge was passed down person to person through the generations and happened to pop out through Pythagoras, or whether mathematical insights get rediscovered every so often. For you see, math is math. It's about truth in this universe, and math doesn't change, even when people do. So just remember those ships, sine and cosine, coming at each other, passing and then reaching zero or one, turning around and coming back at each other again. Precisely, again and again, forever. Now that's math. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation... We'll talk about what it's like to be there when the results of a final clinical trial for a potential new drug comes in. I'll speak with Dr. Sue Desmond-Hellman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Penny Heaton, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, a new effort also referred to as Gates MRI. And then we'll hear from a scientist entrepreneur who's received Gates funding in the past, Dr. Jake Glanville. He's the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Distributed Bio, and he's looking to develop a universal flu vaccine. And now, Dr. Sue Desmond-Hellman and Dr. Penny Heaton. Well, welcome both of you to Tech Nation. Thank Thank you. you. Uh, I have to ask you first, uh, Sue, Here you were, chancellor of the University of California, San Francisco. It's like a dream job. It's a job that we just slow, people take this job. They last for many years. You had this dream job, the first woman to have it. I sit there one day and go, oh, my goodness, you're now CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. How could you leave this dream job to go off to the Gates Foundation in another city yet? So tell us, what, what made you move? Why did you want it? So um, here's the thing. I, I, it was excruciating. I, I, I am sincere about that. It was excruciating. I love UCSF. I mean, I am all in on UCSF. I trained there. My friends are there. My dad was born in San Francisco. He's a St. Ignatius guy. I mean, I'm San Francisco and UCSF. 
So when Bill and Melinda Gates asked me uh, to look at the CEO job, um, I said, I can't possibly do that. Um, and uh, they are really good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> are they persuasive? They, Many oh, people don't know that, but this is good to know. They we are it here. very good. So so um, the, what I love about working with Bill and Melinda is they're very good in very different ways. And so when they were putting on the hard sell, and I would characterize it as hard sell, which sounds funny, but um, what was so compelling is that at one point, and I'll never forget this, I'm at home and they are on the speakerphone and they were a little sick of me. I had convinced myself I could do both jobs, which was oh, just really? tells you how... You are good. No, I'm not. <laughs> that just tells you how crazy I was uh-huh. with this very hard decision. I mean, I thought, oh my God, I can't leave this place. I love this place. And so it was the combination of two things that drove me. And, and they're really important to me. One is... I recognized that I was leaving UCSF in great hands. And, you know, my successor, Sam Hoggood, is amazing. And Chancellor Hoggood is amazing. And I'm really, really happy to say I left the place better than I found it and with a wonderful successor. But for me, hearing the seriousness that Bill and Melinda had about making an impact, this was the most... I, I, I will never forget what I heard in their voices when they said, I, I actually, I was so struggling. They said, I said, tell me why I should come and not stay at this wonderful university with Mission Bay and biotech and everything that's happening. And the reason was that they thought that I uniquely could contribute something. And the, and the mission was so compelling, but, but of course the mission's compelling. It's the best mission in the world. All lives have equal value, the kinds of things we work on. But what just caught me unaware was they were absolutely determined that Warren Buffett and Bill and Melinda Gates would use their wealth to change the world for the better. And I, I just thought they, they were so accountable about it. And they said, if you come and help us, it's more likely that that will be true. And I literally, I walked from the study, and I walked in the next room where my husband Nick is, and I said, Nick, I have no idea how we're going to figure this out, but we have to go. And it was just like that. He said, okay, honey, what's for dinner? (laughs) (laughs) No, he said, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. So, you know, it's it's. Now, when I look back, I think, oh, my gosh, I must have been a giant pain for poor Bill and Melinda. But, you know, so here's here are two people who are so accomplished and, you know, they could do anything with their wealth in their lives. And they're focusing on things like HIV, AIDS, tuberculosis. They're focusing on malaria. I mean, these are diseases that matter so much for the world. So I find it really compelling. Well, you certainly did a good job on malaria, because if you say malaria, the next thing anybody says is the Gates Foundation. Malaria still causes about almost 500,000 deaths every year. Uh, And uh, the Gates Foundation has a very holistic strategy to try to fight this disease with the goal of actually eliminating it from the face of the earth by 2035. So how in the world are we going to do that, a parasite that's transmitted by mosquitoes? And, um, you know, the the malaria cause is very personal to me. Right after I finished my pediatric infectious disease fellowship, I had a long-term project in Kenya. And I was actually doing um, diarrheal disease surveillance. But in fact, 
that was nested within a sub-study of um, the uh, where they were looking at the impact of insecticide-treated bed nets on malaria and looking at the reduction in mortality. And that study did indeed show a 23% reduction in mortality. But I saw kids every day with cerebral malaria, you know, very ill. Uh, I saw children die from malaria. So um, the, the fact that now I get to be at the Gates Foundation, now the Gates MRI, to find solutions for malaria. It's super exciting. It's just absolutely thrilling. Well, MRI is brand new. The MRI is brand new. We opened our doors on January 2nd in Cambridge. We'll have a small satellite office in Seattle. Uh, our You can think of us as um, nonprofit biotech. I think that's the best way to think about it. And we are focused on the diseases that disproportionately affect the poor. Three diseases specifically malaria, tuberculosis, and diarrheal diseases. And the idea is that we will take the latest cutting-edge technologies, the latest approaches, and apply them to diseases of the poorest. Because as Sue said, we believe that all lives have equal value. So if we're using these technologies for rich world diseases, for oncology, for autoimmune diseases, for gene therapy, why shouldn't we be applying them to these other diseases that disproportionately affect the poor? Now, the Gates Foundation is in Seattle. And you're out here in Cambridge. The Medical Research Institute is in Cambridge. Yes. Is there a reason for that? Oh, yes. Well, well let's, uh, let's just take a step back and say why Gates Medical Research Institute to start and then exactly. why Boston-Cambridge, okay? So um, uh, I, I've sort of chuckled with people about my new job, which I'm now four years into. It's not that new anymore. It, there are two attributes of my new job that um, I think are really terrific, um, number one, I don't have to make money. So I can think about long-term bets and and take risks that others with their shareholders or their investors right. can't. So I don't have to make money. That's an asset. And the other thing is, you know, because uh, as chancellor at UCSF, I don't have to raise money. I don't have to ask people to contribute to a university or, you know, anything else I'm doing. So I'm not somebody who's trying to get an R01 grant or the NIH to fund me. And so the the two assets that, that we have at the Gates Foundation and that I have as CEO is don't have to make money, don't have to raise money. So you might say, oh, gee, I sit back all day and say life is good. Life is good. Fat city, right? Here's the thing that I think is amazing is the thing that keeps me up at night is that I have no excuses, we have no excuses. Every single employee at Bill Melinda Gates Foundation, like you've heard this a thousand, I know you've heard it a thousand times. If only administration let me do X. If only NIH would let me take risk, I'd have solved Alzheimer's. If only my investors would let me make long-term bets. You know, we don't have any if onlys, right? So no excuses. So really in the absence of excuses, remember what I said, Bill and Melinda were serious? We have to get things done. And so our biggest risk as a foundation is execution risk. And so the Gates MRI, number one, is all about that, is all about putting as much firepower, like tapping into talent, passion, pace, the latest. We want the cool stuff, but we want the cool stuff applied to the serious problems that affect low resource areas like Penny just talked about. So if you want all the coolest stuff 
and the most talented people and all that kind of what I call firepower. Like I want people to, to have the hairs up on the back of their neck about malaria, about tuberculosis, about diarrhea. And it, we know that right now, Cambridge, Boston, it's hot. So you can walk down the street and chat with somebody. So Throw a stone, you hit biotech. You here. hit biotech. <laughs> so we do think, I mean, for me, I'm big on the water cooler effect. I'd love to talk about it more. But but I think the um, it, there is a serious water cooler effect going on here. Hang around together. And and, and Penny and her team and, and the team that Penny has assembled I actually think now we got to get something done. Forming a team, step one, execution, getting something done. Their ability to ask and answer questions with pace, I I can't tell you how excited I am about it. That's why we did this, and that's why we're Penny is here. So let's get this straight. This isn't a foundation sitting here going, we have money to give away for people doing good research. You're saying no, we have to create treatments. We have a serious sense of urgency, and we have a serious sense of urgency that people – so Penny just talked about malaria. Here's, here's the problem. That great uh, um, pesticide, the insect, the safe insecticides that you, you put on bed nets, you think of how high the hurdle is for covering a bed with a bed net that a child will sleep in. That is product development that's hard, and the mosquitoes got resistant to the, the most widely used one. The same thing for the most typically used anti-malarials. The mosquitoes get resistant. So, so we need not only excellent product development, we need to hurry up because if, if we're complacent about the gains that have been had in malaria, the, the promise is all these gains. The threat is this rapid emergence of resistance to both the anti-malarials for humans and the things that you put on the bed nets to protect people when they're sleeping or on the walls of their huts. That's why Penny's team can't be like, okay, you know, 20 years from now, they're moving. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Sue Desmond Hellman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Penny Heaton, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, also known as Gates MRI. Penny, what keeps you up at night? It's exactly that. It's, it's about having impact. Our mission is not small. Our three goals are to, as I alluded to earlier, eradicate malaria, end diarrheal disease deaths, and accelerate the end of the TB epidemic. And so how are we going to do that? And so that's what my team and I are all about. We're taking a different approach. Um, and I don't think, you know, the pieces of what we're doing are similar to what you would see in big pharma or in biotech. But I think it's how we're bringing them together. That makes the difference. Uh, first of all, we're building certain areas of expertise that have been roadblocks and bottlenecks in product development in the past, from my past life, you know, in, in, in the private sector. We are bringing in good translational scientists who know how to ask the right questions, design studies to get the right data, and then iterate on that data to make progress. We're bringing in good CMC manufacturing specialists because so often, especially in vaccines and biologics, that's a bottleneck. Uh, we are bringing in people who understand the importance of 
biomarkers and immunologic correlates of efficacy that can be used to streamline development, accelerate development, and get to that urgency that we need. And then finally, we're bringing in quantitative scientists. It's an area that's been highly underutilized in the global health space. I think by using modeling, simulation, trying to predict what are the outcomes here? What are the factors that we need to be looking at? How do we need to be looking at them? And to do that before we go into a big trial in a low-income country. So we're, we're kind of excited about this. Are you, are you guys excited? <laughs> I just want to know. Now, I think that something that's very important to me is to make sure people understand that you guys didn't start here. You guys did other things. In a former life, Penny, you worked on a rotavirus vaccine. Tell people about that. What was it solving? What happened? Where did it go? I, result. I did. It was an incredible experience, and it's still ongoing. The uh, study that I did in Kenya, where we were looking at malaria, I was also looking at diarrheal diseases. And I followed children for two years for diarrheal disease. And at the end of two years, of 400 children that I had followed, 52 had died. And 26 had diarrheal disease at the time of death. 26 had pneumonia at the time of death. What we had to offer them from the public health perspective, things like latrines, safe water, those things weren't feasible for people in this very poor area. And so I was really in a quandary as to what I was going to do with my life and how we were going to help these people. And I got an email from a recruiter at Merck and said, you know, we need someone to come and help with the rotavirus vaccine. I was like, voila, yes, that <laughs> is something that could be very feasible. And so I started to work at Merck in 1999. And uh, the interesting thing is while I was uh, working with my team at Merck to develop the rotavirus vaccine, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was being born. Gavi was being put together. And the first two programs that Gavi sponsored, the first one was acceleration of rotavirus vaccine introduction into low-income countries. So uh, once we got the vaccine licensed in the U.S. and recommended for U.S. children, then I got to travel with individuals from the World Health Organization and from PATH setting up the rotavirus vaccine studies in Africa and Asia. And it was just an incredible experience. That vaccine has since been pre-qualified by the World Health Organization and recommended for all children universally. Then I came to the foundation about six years ago got to help other companies, uh, low-income country manufacturers, with making their rotavirus vaccines. And literally, I would say every few weeks, there is another article that comes out about the impact of rotavirus vaccine in low-income countries. In fact, while I was waiting for you to do this interview, I read an article where uh, they did a study in the Gambia looking at the impact of rotavirus uh, vaccine, and it reduced severe rotavirus hospitalizations by 50% just after the first year of introduction. So super exciting. So now we know why Penny was hired. <laughs> okay, that's a clue. <laughs> Good clue. Aren't we smart? Whoa, you picked that. You picked that. That was a good qualifier there. Um, you know, I, I go back to the days in which you were at Genentech, and you had all kinds of titles. You were chief medical officer, president of product development. You were all kinds of things. My biggest memory, and I was reminded today because I was reminded that you are one of the names on the patent for Herceptin, but I remember the story you told about the results coming in, the phase three results. Remind people what Herceptin did 
and tell us about the results. Tell us that story again. Yeah, so the it was one of the highlights of my life. It's 1998, and, you know, everybody's at ASCO right now. So The big cancer the conference. The big cancer conference, and they're probably on their way here from Chicago, if they're smart. And if you think about the field then, so for me personally, I had just moved from Bristol-Myers Squibb, where I worked on Taxol. And I worked on the approval of Taxol uh, for metastatic breast cancer in the U.S. and then in Europe with great colleagues who taught me so much about how to think about regulatory and uh, all the acronyms like IND and CMC and all these things that (laughs) Patty just threw around. So I get to Genentech, and Herceptin is struggling. We're struggling to do the Herceptin trial. Taxol had been approved, and there had been a study that showed that you should use adriamycin in the adjuvant setting. This is way back when. With the Taxol. With, so it was AC in the adjuvant setting back then. And so Taxol increasingly was being used. We had a trial using Herceptin with anthracyclines. And so the, the big move was to amend the trial to put in Taxol. That was new. Now um, remind people what Herceptin did. And it was the first yeah. it was the first drug that I remember that came with a diagnostic. Yeah, so Herceptin is a monoclonal antibody. Um, it's a monoclonal antibody that was specifically designed only for women who have HER2 positive breast cancer. And so if you don't have HER2 positive breast cancer, you it's not the right drug for you. So when people today talk about precision medicine, um, drugs like Gleevec and Herceptin were the first approved precision medicine drugs. So now it seems normal. Back in the day, it didn't seem so normal. And so no one thought Herceptin would work. Um, It was just not, people were very, very, very skeptical. So in 1997, Rituxan was approved. IDEX drug, then IDEC, Biogen, Genentech had a collaboration. But um, the, the Rituxan was a chimeric antibody. It was approved in 97 late, and it was approved for lymphoma. And the skeptic said, oh, that's a liquid tumor. You can do it. Li- that's a low bar. It's, maybe it's circulating. The antibody can get to it. An antibody is too big to penetrate a solid tumor. There's just a ton of skepticism. So, so after all of that, we had a randomized phase three trial that real amazing heroes like Tom Twadell and, and Hank Fuchs and Steve Shack, people who are, who are still driving great things in, in, in biotech. Uh, um, unfortunately, Tom Twadell passed away. But there was massive uncertainty. So Shack is at Genentech, and he's the clinical scientist on Herceptin at the time. And he comes to my office, and he... He tells me the results. There was a there was a protocol. So I'm the chief medical officer, and he tells me the results. And Shaq and I are just absolutely just beside ourselves that her septum extended the time to progression in her two positive women with breast cancer. It was just it was it was as if like a lightning bolt came out of the sky for me. I just like even thinking about it now, I get the shivers. So I say, Steve, game face. Game face, you've got to, you know, because it's, it's like a huge material event and people can't trade stock yeah. and you know all that stuff. So I say, Shaq, not a word to anyone. Game face. We have a whole unblinding plan, right? We have a whole plan for how we uh, talk about the trial. And Shaq leaves my office and I pick up the phone and I call Art Levinson. 
And I said, Art, Shaq just told me the Herceptin results. And he, he was down at the bottom of the hill at old Genentech. And I said um, to Art, Shaq just told me the results. He said, you can't tell me on the phone. <laughs> you have to come down here. I've been speaking with Dr. Sue Desmond-Hellman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Penny Heaton, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, also known as Gates MRI. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation and Tech Nation Health are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Jake Glanville and the development of a universal flu vaccine. Stay with us. You're listening to Tech Nation. I've been speaking with Dr. Sue Desmond-Hellman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Penny Heaton, CEO of Gates MRI. We've been talking about a time earlier in Sue's career when she was the chief medical officer of Genentech. She'd just received the results of the final clinical trial for the women's breast cancer drug, Herceptin. I pick up the phone, and I call Art Levinson. And I said, Art, Shaq just told me the Herceptin results. And he, he was down at the bottom of the hill at old Genentech. And I said um, to Art, Shaq just told me the results. He said, you can't tell me on the phone. <laughs> you have to come down here. So I hang up the phone, and I'm in Building 24, and he's down in the original Genentech building by the bay. And I, I'm a runner, <laughs> Like I run as fast as I can down the the, the uh, street, and I run up the stairs, and I run in his office, and I realize I didn't bring anything with me, because <laughs> Shaq had told me, and I like you know jotted down, or I think he may have even showed me. I'm not sure I wrote, you know, because this is a material event. So I got on Art's whiteboard, and I draw what happened if you if you only got chemotherapy, if you only got adriamycin and cytoxin, or only Taxol. 
and what happened to the women who got Herceptin plus chemotherapy. And I said, if you Art, got that. if you got Herceptin, you live longer. And, and I sat down at his table and I looked at him and he looked at me and I thought, oh my gosh, like everything for breast cancer patients is going to change. And I got to tell Art Levinson. And, you know, Art had worked with Mike Bishop in the lab on oncogenes. And Bishop was awarded the Nobel Prize. And I'll never forget seeing Art and Mike Bishop interviewed together in the chancellor's office. And, I mean, I'm, I just, at that moment in time, I thought, I, you can put it on my grave <laughs> that I was here and I got to tell Art Levinson that all that's, like, all that science and all that hard work and all the people, you know, I like uh, clinical science because it's a team sport, had meant that we had Herceptin. And to this day, I just think, oh, my gosh, not only to work on it, but to to know everything would change after that, which is great. And today, if you have breast cancer, the first thing they ask, are, are you HER2 positive? positive? <laughs> are you HER2 positive? And is that, what is it, somewhere between 20 and 30% of women It's are? about 20 to 30%. Yes, and in there. And it's, it's like, it's going to work. It's, it's a beautiful thing because, you know, our dream back then, and <laughs> I was so naive. And by the way, I still am. <laughs> but it's good to dream. It's good to dream. I had this dream that you would stop having the breast cancer clinic and the colon cancer clinic and the lung cancer clinic, and that the clinic would have on it the HER2 door and the RAS door. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, that was, and, and today with the immune approach to cancer, that's the big, big news at the cancer meeting this week. It, it's, it's just extraordinary to think that now 20 years later, that so it was 1998 that Herceptin trial. I was I was fortunate enough to tell Art Levinson worked, and and so 20 years later, everything's different and so much better, and we're so much further. But the fact that you could use a an unarmed monoclonal antibody directed at her too, and then we needed to figure out the diagnostic strategy. We only had. Uh, a lab diagnostic. We didn't have anything ready to go to FDA on the diagnostic side because there, you know, nobody knew it would work (laughs) and we weren't a diagnostics company. So that was a whole other story. But the the fact that you could do that changed everything. Now, the only thing I have to add from having interviewed Art Levinson is that (laughs) he did... He did note that by the time you got to his office, you had taken your shoes off. <laughs> I guess to run down the hill. To run faster down the hill. <laughs> That's the only thing that's uh, a little color well, there. Uh, among other things, Art's attention to detail is better than mine. <laughs> very good. He has very good attention to detail. Yeah. And well, at, at least you had that experience. For the phase three trials of the rotavirus vaccine that I worked on, I knew the results were coming in, and it was December 23rd, and the statistics had to go shopping for a gift for his wife. So he called me and he said, Penny, I ran the, I ran the analysis. The results are on my door in a manila envelope. And so I, I booked down to his office and grabbed the results off his door and tore them open. And we had satisfied the primary safety hypothesis. You had a good Christmas. You had a good Christmas. You had a good Christmas. <laughs> Ladies, thank you so much. You know, you're both welcome forever on Tech Nation. And thanks for coming in. Thank you for thank having you. us. 
My guests today are Dr. Sue Desmond-Hillman, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and Dr. Penny Heaton, CEO of the Bill and Melinda Gates Medical Research Institute, also known as Gates MRI. More information is available at gatesfoundation.org or gatesmri.org. While the Gates Foundation's new efforts to transition medical discovery to actual treatments has been formalized in Gates MRI, its interest in scientist entrepreneurs is not new. My next guest is both a research scientist and a bio-entrepreneur whose work in developing a universal flu vaccine has been funded several times by the Gates Foundation. Dr. Jake Glanville is the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Distributed Bio, located in South San Francisco. I started out by asking him what everyone asks him. Every year, a new flu vaccine is generated, and every year we're told that it likely will not protect us against all the flu strains that are out there. About a decade ago, people began to discover that in rare cases, some people produce protection that protects them not against just that flu year, but against all the flus that follow or for many years. And that created great interest in the scientific community to try to make vaccines that would be able to do the same. We were asking, hey, if that guy's protected, why can't we all enjoy that kind of permanent protection? And traditionally, this has been difficult because the flu mutates every year. So when you get a flu shot, you're protected that year, but Against last year's flu? That's right. And then <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> if you're lucky, sometimes the flu shot doesn't even work against last year's flu because they're having to make a prediction over what the flu is going to look like when they're working on the vaccine, and it might change in the meantime. So if you're lucky, that flu shot protects you that year, but then by the next year, it's mutated again. And so eventually your protection is against the wrong kind of flu, and you need a new flu shot. So what I'm doing that's different is I'm trying to train the immune system to recognize parts of the flu that can never change. Because if those parts change, the virus is no longer infectious or it, it can't even be viable. And if we can teach the immune system to do that, then everyone gets permanent protection. And we'd be able to eliminate seasonal influenza and the risk of global pandemics. Well, how did you figure out, or how are you figuring out, what parts of the flu are common to all of them and that they don't appear in other essential microorganisms, if you will? Sure, that's a great question. So... Some of that work was done before me. The, you know, many researchers have been looking at influenza for years, and you can um, look at the sequences of the proteins that are on the outside of a virus, and you can see how they mutate over time. And from looking at a lot of these, we found that there are certain sites that it seems like they just can't mutate, that if they mutate them, then the virus dies. So we found those, and then the question was, well, then why aren't we producing antibodies against those sites? And it turns out we were. It was just very difficult to get the right antibodies. The immune system was getting sort of distracted by the wrong sites and grabbing on parts of the virus that it's able to mutate easily year after year. So that work already existed. Uh, what I was doing that was unique was coming up with a new way to try to train the immune system to recognize the, the correct sites that don't change. You can think of it a little bit like the, the same problem that a parent does when they're trying to teach their toddler how to recognize a dog. If you show a, a picture of the same dog over and over again, it will really only recognize that one dog, and maybe even only from that one angle. So that's not what parents do. They show lots of different pictures of dogs from different angles, and the kid begins to pattern recognize the common features of dogs. And that's essentially what we're doing with our vaccine. We're showing it many different versions of the virus all at once in a way that trains the immune system to recognize the common patterns that never change. So when you're saying a vaccine, you're putting 
pieces of virus in that you will then inject and then I'll create all these different antibodies? That's right. The normal flu shot that we receive every year has mostly an outside coat protein of the virus called hemagglutinin. Like that H1N1, it's the H, stands for hemagglutinin. And they inject you with, if it's 2008, they'd inject you with the 2007 H1N1 hemagglutinin. And if you're lucky, you produce antibodies against that one season. And then they, they wear off. So what we're doing that's different is we've analyzed 100 years of influenza, and we've picked a strategic set of 30 or 40 different hemagglutinins that are all really different, and we administer them all at once at a really low dose. And so your immune system doesn't have enough dose to recognize just one of the strains, but B cells, your immune system that recognizes uh, parts that don't change across all the strains, those ones activate. So it teaches the immune system to respond to the parts of the virus that don't change. So the immune system is almost doing the processing here, saying, what's the commonality between all these little fragments? That's right. It's pattern recognition. Pumping through your blood is a molecular recognition engine that's the envy of the entire pharmaceutical industry, right? We have this remarkable ability to recognize new things. I'm just trying to talk to it in the way that the immune sort of speak immune system back to the immune system. Instead of showing it one thing, I go, here, here's 30 things at once. But I'm only going to give you a tiny bit of each, so you have to recognize shared parts in order to give a big enough dose to respond effectively. This is so much better than, well, we have our big computer here, and we're going to analyze it and figure out what it is. Your own immune system can figure it out. Yeah, I'm, it's the immune system uh, constantly amazes me. It's All the research I've done is essentially trying to understand how the immune system protects us with an almost unfathomably large number of unique antibodies. And still, sometimes it does goofy things. It, it goes after the wrong parts of a virus, or it attacks the self. And the more we can understand how the immune system behaves, the more we can transform many aspects of medicine. In this case, going after rapidly mutating viruses. Now, we have things like the avian flu and the swine flu. Are these all connected to us? Yeah. It's, it's, so here's the way flu works. I was pretty excited and terrified when I began to realize <laughs> the full way that inf- the, our, the influenza... I like that. Excited and terrified. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the influenza that we experience, right? So we give human influenzas and they circulate in human populations. It's mostly H1 and H3. Then pigs also have a set of influenzas and, and pigs and humans can share their influenzas pretty easily. Then birds, so that's chickens, but that's also migratory birds and birds out in the woods have a set of uh, avian influenzas. And they take, they're a little bit harder to go from birds to, to pigs or birds to humans. Uh, but the avians have most influenza. So most of the influenza we experience has this vast reservoir from all the birds that are circulating around the earth. And they're spreading them because they can fly and they occur in large groups of flocks. And when those uh, weird influenzas, like H5s or H7s or H9s, when they transmit into humans through pigs or directly from birds, they can be incredibly lethal. Um, and so far... We've been somewhat lucky in that uh, most of the time when it goes from a bird or a pig to human, it doesn't transmit from human to human. But we're always worried about that because if a, um adapted form transmits and can kill a lot of people and can transmit from human to human, then you could have a pandemic of extremely lethal proportion. And historically, there have been um, pandemics every 10 or 20 years. So there's been um, some major ones in the past century, including in 1918, there was a pandemic that killed 51 million people. And that was a a virus that became partially adapted from transmitting from birds to to pigs and to humans. We're worried about the next big pandemic, and it's getting potentially more dangerous uh, in the modern age because we're growing these mega factories that hold tens of thousands of pigs or poultry. And the the more pigs you have in there, 
the more chance you have of bird viruses and pig viruses and human viruses all going and mixing in the same pig at once. And that, that's how the recombination happens and can create new pandemics. Now, can we vaccinate the pigs with a universal flu vac- vaccine? We can. And for the research that I did, I chose pig as my test model. So I, I used to work at Pfizer and um, a lot of animal research, you're picking an animal that's easy to do your drug studies on. And, and my mouse is the, the common one. And I never really wanted to use a mouse as an animal model because I find that it's very different than a human. And the kinds of studies you do to treat a mouse version of the disease often don't translate well to the human version. So when I began these studies, I decided I wanted to work with pig. And the reason was that they have uh, susceptibility to get infected to the, to the kind of get infected to the kind of flus that we get. Uh, they have a similar body size to ours, so the amount of titer you need to get would be more relevant. And there's a market. There's a 165 million dollar per year market in veterinary vaccines for pigs. So it became a way that I could prove the mechanism and also provide a way to provide funding to support first developing a vaccine for flu for pigs and then catapult that as, us into producing a universal vaccine for humanity. So wait a minute, distributed bio started out by developing a vaccine for pigs so it could get revenue? That's right. So so we had a software platform that helped people analyze uh, antibodies using high-throughput genomic sequencing. So instead of pointing it at the genome that had been solved, we pointed at the immune system that we have not even begun to solve. And that, that turned out to be a popular technology, and about 35 different pharmaceutical companies are using it. And then we also use that information to engineer better monoclonal therapeutic medicines. These are antibodies as drugs. And, and both of those arenas that were profitable gave us the money needed to go run these studies. Uh, luckily, I had a number of collaborators in Guatemala. I grew up on a lake called Lake Atitlan in Guatemala um, during my childhood, and I had many friends who were academics in the University of San Carlos, including Aaron Calgua, who was my primary collaborator. So uh, at one point, I talked to some companies here in the States asking about the right animal model, and we decided it was pig. And then I called my father because I had remembered that Guatemala produces a lot of pig or pork, essentially, as a, as a commercial source. And so I asked my father and I asked uh, my collaborators at the University of San Carlos, what does a pig cost in Guatemala? And that really began, began the this, uh, say, elaborate effort that turned out to be very successful to go create an international collaboration between Distributed Bio in California um, and the University of San Carlos in Guatemala and um, a number of students that we pulled from the University of San Francisco program here in the Bay Area to be able to go run these studies that at heart don't need to be that complicated. You're, in essence, building a vaccine and testing it, and we did that here in the United States with our biosafety level 2 facility. We would ship those proteins down to Guatemala immunize pigs. Our vet would draw blood and we'd send it back to the United States for testing. It could have worked out poorly. There was definitely problems in what we did. Um, I would say we spent a lot more time worrying about uh, shipping than someone who could run the research at one facility in Iowa. You don't Iowa. mean shipping pigs. Oh, no. This is just, <laughs> yeah, we wouldn't ship the pigs. But, you, you know, you're shipping the vaccine components and then you're shipping back the serum. You have to get a lot of approvals to, to get the shipping in place. So how many pigs do you have in Guatemala? Each study was, um, see, the first study was 32 pigs. The second study was 36 pigs. So it's not a huge number of pigs, but it's it's enough that um, it gets rowdy quickly. So, <laughs> they, yeah, they start off as really cute, and uh, they were all named. So we had, like, Squeonce, um, Kim Kardashian, Piggy Azalea, Squeonna. Got to do something at, at night after, <laughs> yeah. you know, 12 hours in the lab. <laughs> yep. And so they start off, you know, you can pick two of them up easily, one in each arm, and then uh, they double in weight every month. So you're kind of on a race against time before they become 
you know, 300 pound animals. Um, but they're, they're, they're gentle creatures. They're pretty easy to work with. And we had veterinary specialists that could, uh, handle the facility down there. Now you would vaccinate a pig yep, and then let a little time pass because you have to develop your antibodies. You got to let the pig immune system do its thing. Uh, and can you measure that, that it's in place? Yeah, so that's that's exactly the experiment. You go get these piggies, you give them a little vaccine. It's in the near the shoulder, so where you vaccinate a pig. Um, and then you we wait seven days and we draw some blood, and that's to ask some questions around the, the cells that are circulating. And then you wait another 21 days and you draw some more blood. And at that point, that, that, that full set of 28 days is given enough time for the antibodies to start appearing. And the way these experiments work is you give one shot and then you kind of give a boost and then you give another boost. And so you're asking, as we keep boosting the animals, how do we get an increased uh, protection? And the, the question you ask is, first you ask, okay, is there serum binding to the hemagglutinins? And you have a panel of a century of viruses going all the way back to 1918, just the protein, not the whole virus. So it's not infectious. So Sarah Ives, who's the uh, project lead, would go get a set of 15 different viruses from the past century from the influenza research resource. She would then inject them into eggs in a special incubator in our biosafety level two facility, and you grow the virus in eggs. It, it's pretty cool looking research. You have to go candle the eggs, or you lift up a candle, a light behind them, and make sure that the the virus is growing effectively. And you're having um, eggs like in your refrigerator. These look like yeah, they come from a, <laughs> they come from a very special clean facility, but they basically it looks like eggs. Like in, you basically hope that no one goes in there and starts having an uh, an egg fight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like no, not these yep. eggs. Uh, yeah, and you grow you grow all these viruses, and that's that's traditional way of producing vaccines. That's right. Yeah, because I mean, it's an egg is this magical self-contained little unit where you could grow a whole bunch of virus. And that, that that's traditionally how uh, vaccine virus is grown. So we grow it because we want to ask. Okay, we've got the piggy's blood, and we want to say it's serum that has all its antibodies. If we mix its serum with the virus, is the virus no longer infectious? That's called a neutralization assay. We're asking, does the, inf- does the pig's vaccine response result in the ability to neutralize the virus? And that's where we got really excited because we found that the pigs who received our shot were neutralizing not just historical viruses, but they were neutralizing viruses that occurred after the point that we gave the vaccine, so future viruses. Which so is the-, the viruses were mutating and they were getting those. They were still getting them because we trained their immune system to produce a bunch of antibodies that recognize the sites that could never change. Now, does your father, is he, is he in charge of all the pigs after the study? Uh, so my father had an extra um, piece of land that we were able to use to build the facility. We had the Professor Aaron Calgua, who runs the major research relationships with the University of San Carlos in Guatemala. And then we had a veterinary specialist named Karina Reina, who was managing the animals. So in addition to, to them who were there full time, I also had researchers from Distributed Bio that were traveling down every two or three weeks. So we had a constant stream of researchers that were down there providing um, the molecular biology, so spinning down the, the plasma and collecting the RNA from the cells and, and prefer- preparing the shipping. Just sort of reaching back to that Spanish flu pandemic of 1918, how many people in the world would have to be vaccinated so that such a pandemic wouldn't happen? Sure. So there's this concept of herd immunity. And it says that if enough people are protected uh, in a group, in a population, then even if uh, the virus got in, that it wouldn't be able to transmit from person to person efficiently. Very, very generally. Maybe pe- one to another, but most of it, you'd yeah. have to be right next to them in the herd in the right place. That's right. right. It would sort of peter out instead of propagate. 
And so the rough number that people throw around is about 80% protection is what you want um, to produce a universal flu vaccine and then ask not just to tamp down on seasonal flu, but also to create eradication. There'd be some challenges. One is that you always have the birds around, so they could be transmitting back into human populations again. And the other one is we also have those pigs. So vaccinating the pig populations would help because it would get rid of a mixing species. Uh, it's going to be hard to vaccinate migratory birds, but you could vaccinate human populations. And it would be hard to vaccinate everyone. But the good news with flu is that um, there are kind of two categories of populations. There's populations who would pay for flu shots because they get it a lot. And those tend to be more affluent populations. You would still need to supplement or have some mechanism to work with the foundation to be able to share these flu shots with areas where people realistically are not going to afford the vaccine. So with inf with influenza and Guatemala as an example, we still get flu in Guatemala, but we don't get it as severely as it happens in, in more northern uh, northern countries. So that would be a case where people wouldn't go out of their way to go get a flu shot. And if your goal was to try to create global level pandemic protection, we might need to supplement um, the the free dispersal of flu shots. But that said, if you damp down on large sectors of the population that are largely vulnerable, then again, it's a, it's like a global level herd immunity where suddenly there's less chance for the flu to bounce around from, from country to country if it's if there's certain countries that are sort of off limits to it um, infecting people. Now, you've seen the antibody response that you're looking for in the pigs. When are you going to humans? Yeah, so that's a great question. So uh, the next steps for the research um, are that we're going to take the vaccine, we're administering it to pigs, we're playing around with the formulation, which basically means we're adjusting some chemicals in the vaccine to try to figure out how to give one shot that gives the strongest protection, maybe two shots. Right now, we don't want to have to give four shots. That's, that's too many shots to be practical. And that would be, and then after you do that, you do something called a live challenge study. And that is that you give a pig a flu shot. And then after that, in a very controlled facility, you spray it in the nose with influenza and see if it gets sick or not. That's the ultimate test to say, does your vaccine work? Uh, and that's the main requirement to get the vaccine approved for use in animal markets. Right now, given the current timelines, we're estimating it would be about 2021 when the flu shot would be available in pig markets. Um, we could begin selling it internationally, likely through a partner. Around the same time, uh, we would be proceeding with a study in ferrets because the FDA likes to see how flu works in ferrets. For weird historical reasons, ferrets have kind of similar lung tissue and people have used them before. So... You end up te te testing vaccines in ferrets before they go into humans. You, how's your father feel about the ferrets? Uh, we're, we're, we will not be bringing ferrets down to Guatemala. <laughs> Don't worry, Dad, if you're listening to this interview. Let's go back, back to the ferrets. Back yeah. to the ferrets. So after the ferrets, we'd go into human. And right now we have these and you have these things called Gantt charts. Basically, you're mapping out when you think, think things are going to happen. And it looks around 2021 is when we go first in human. There's a, a period of prep where you have to do uh, careful manufacture your vaccine, a bunch of quality control. And in the first human study, you're just checking to basically make sure it's safe. Then after that, there'll be a, a period of uh, phase trials where you're trying larger groups of people and you're checking to see how much protection did they benefit from. Uh, and those are things we can check in the same ways that we checked with the pigs. And then um, according to that Gantt chart and that timeline, we're looking at, if everything goes smoothly, a universal vaccine being available by the second quarter of 2025. And if all that worked, we still have to look at, well, what about the next year? And what about the next year? And what about the next year? So the good news for this vaccine is that it will be the last flu shot you'd ever need. The way that's designed is that by giving 
different flus from across a century, you're kind of giving it the evolutionary space. If it hasn't, if the flu shot, the the virus hasn't figured out how to evolve away from those uh. sites in the last hundred years, it's not going to be able to do it in the next five years. So you're going to get that shot. You might probably have to get a booster, like with tetanus, every five years, but you're no longer having to get one every year, and you're no longer worried that it might be a bad match. It's going to be a perfect match against anything that can come ahead. And part of the really exciting thing about the research we did with the pigs was that we planned the second experiment pretending it was 2008. And so I gave only vaccine components from 2007 and earlier to those pigs. Um, And then we also gave a normal flu shot from 2007 to a different set of pigs. The the pigs that got the normal flu shot were protected from 2007-2008, but they weren't protected against pandemic swine flu from 2009 or any future viruses. Whereas the pigs that we gave our 2008 version of the universal vaccine to, they had neutralizing protection against future viruses. They've neutralized swine flu, future pandemic, and everything out to 2015. So they were creating an immune response that the virus could not escape. And that's that's the goal, is to have one flu shot, and that would be the only one you'd ever need. Okay, Jake, you probably have thought of this, but there are other viruses. The approach I described, what we call Centivax, uh, if you think about it, there's it could work for any virus that mutates rapidly. So we tried flu first because there was an obvious market. Flu was relatively easy to work with. But the killer application is HIV. This technique could also work on the phyloviruses like Ebola and Marburg. It could work on the flaviviruses like Zika and yellow fever and dengue and West Nile. It could work on coronaviruses like MERS and SARS. And it could even work on complex pathogens like malaria or the trypanosomes such as African sleeping sickness. I think a flu shot is great. I was an asthmatic growing up, and I like the idea of not having to worry about flu anymore. But I think if I were to look at this work and ask myself what would make it extremely satisfying, that would be if I could make a working solution to the troubling case of a flu shot or a vaccine that actually worked against HIV. And, And there's no reason that these technologies should not be applicable in that area. Jake, tremendously exciting. Obviously, wish you the best, and I hope you're not a stranger. I hope you come back and see us again. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a pleasure. My guest today is Jake Glanville, the co-founder and chief scientific officer of Distributed Bio. More information is available on the web at distributedbio.com. For Technation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. Tech Nation and Biotech Nation are productions of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor.